Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, we continue in uh, the third part of a sermon. Really, this paragraph, the whole paragraph, is one large thought. It expands over several weeks for us because of uh, the need to... Uh, um, Our uh, outline just went to announcements. There we go. Those are important, but not as important. All of that paragraph that we're dealing with from verses 7 through verse 16 really are dealing with one main thought. And I've tried to capture it in this title. Unity through diversity equals maturity. Often, as immature people, we think that everyone should be like us and then the whole church will be mature. But what Paul says is unity is real. And it's had through Christ in the Spirit. Unity exists in the body of Christ. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. Paul emphasizes that unity in verses 1 through 6. And then he says, as if to turn on a dime to the other side of the dime, we might say, he turns and says, now this unity that I'm preaching and teaching to you and writing to you about is expressed by Christ through His body in a, in a multiplicity of ways. In diversity. Everyone's not identical in their gifting, in their calling, in the purpose of their life. You've met people like that, right? They're very passionate and we're thankful for that, but now they think you should be passionate about the identical things they're passionate about. Right? They're, they're, good, they're good at making you feel bad because you don't feel the same passion for the same subjects that they feel. And they even begin to question your sincerity to Christ based on the fact that you're not like them. You don't act like them. You don't talk like them. You don't think exactly like they do. You're not passionate about the same ministries. Passionate about the same Lord, but different ministries. And Paul says, be careful, church. Unity is in the Spirit. It's had through Christ. He has given it to you. You have it. It is a reality. And it expresses itself in multiple ways. In a diversity of giftings. All of these things come through the Spirit again. And they're given to us, the church, by Christ. Christ has not left us as orphans in the world. That's what he said in John chapter 14. I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm going to come to you. And how did he come? He ascended to the right hand of his Father, where he there poured out the Spirit on his church. The first evidence of that is Pentecost. I was talking with our children about that this week. 3,000 people saved in one day. Noah says, how many people were there, Daddy? I mean, because he's thinking, 3,000 people got saved. That's a big crowd. There was a huge crowd from all over the known world. And 3,000 of them saved. Why? Because the Spirit was expressed in a diversity of ways that day. All for the same purpose, to reveal Christ to the world. So unity is a reality. He talks about that in verses 1 through 6. And then in verse 7, the word but transitions us to the other side of the same coin to say that unity is expressed through diversity. And last week, we took the time to talk about what I believe to be one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament 
because it's quoting one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 68, verse 18. As I said last week, there's a various number of ways people see this. The way I understand it is that Christ led captive in his, in his train, in his robe of glory, on the cross, in the resurrection and the ascension. He led back to heaven a host of captives. And he poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit on the church. That's the way I understand it. What did he take captive? All of the principalities and rulers of this present age. All of the sin which you and I were guilty of, he captivated that in the cross, paid for it, nullified it, put it to death, and resurrected to himself a new humanity, a new body of Gentiles and Jews. And he has gifted that body with the Spirit. And so we see that he gave gifts to men. But the Spirit then breaks out for us. It breaks out for us. In, in, and we see it in verse 11. Look what he says. After explaining this difficult text, he goes right back to his main point about diversity. And he says, as we read God's word here in verse 11 through 13, And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we're going to stop there, although the thought continues, and we'll get there in next week's sermon, hopefully, God willing. I want to ask three questions and try to give the biblical answer to them. What gifts did Christ give to the church? What, what did he give the church in this text? Now, what, what we know primarily is he gave the Spirit. But what gifts, you know, and we, we often focus in, right? I talked about that last week, especially in the Western church. On What gift do I have? What gift do I possess? Do I, do I prophesy? Do I have words of knowledge? Do I preach? Do I administrate? Do I help? Do I give? That's our focus. But what's the focus of Paul in this passage? Is it gifts, plural, in the sense of, or is it people? See, Paul doesn't focus like the Western church on what the people do, but rather the people themselves. The gifts God has given through Christ and the Holy Spirit are men. Understandably, two groups of men. Apostles and prophets who are given to the foundation of the church. In verse 11 it says, And he gave to the church, he gave the apostles and the prophets. Now who are these apostles and prophets? You know, there are a lot of people floating around the world today, and in our community today, and maybe you know some of them, who proudly take the title apostle. Some take that title. Some others take the title prophet. And my heart always sinks when I hear these titles being used in this way. It abuses them. It misuses them. Wh who were the apostles and prophets? Well, Paul's already told us. In Ephesians 2.20, the context for this term apostle and prophets is given. He's talking about the building of the church. And what does he say? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now... If you know anything about building, buildings are first to lay the foundation and then build the building. 
Once you started building the building, once the foundation is laid, you don't go back and lay another foundation in the same building. And then years later, decide to build another foundation in the same building. The foundation is foundational. First course, right? I mean, we're not building science majors here, are we? We're, we're, we're not even general contractors, most of us. Got a few engineers in the room. But listen, how funny would it look to have a building with a foundation and, and the building starts up and you get to the second or third story and another concrete slab spreads out with new wiring and plumbing and all that and then foundation keeps going, I mean, then building goes up and then a new slab of concrete is poured. Another foundational concrete slab is poured with all the footings and all the technical things that goes into building a foundation. We'd walk by that building and say, that is the strangest, most odd building I've ever laid eyes on. We would think that was silly. Who's building that? That guy needs to go back and take classes and understand how to build buildings, right? But the, many people think that the role of the apostle and prophet has continued to this day. Therefore, God is still adding to the foundation of his church in successive generations. That's not true. If it is true, everything these men uh, are teaching in their specific churches is, should be recorded for us and printed so that all the church universal might read it. Because if they are apostles, truly, in the sense that Paul's talking about here, and if they're prophets, their words are Scripture. This is a very specific gift God gave to the church through Christ and His Spirit, the apostles and prophets. Paul tells us they are the foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. In Ephesians also, verse three, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he further explains what the word apostles and prophets mean, what he's speaking of. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The main task of the apostle and prophet was to reveal the previously hidden and misunderstood mystery of Christ to the church. Either they accomplished the task or they failed. I saw it on the side that they accomplished the task. They took what Christ revealed to them and they recorded it for us in His Word, the mystery of Christ. So why would we need these men now? The work has been done, has it not? The foundation has been laid. The truth is the church has been growing strongly for thousands of years. And it needs no new foundation. We have... These two specific roles, one, one really, these two both being New Testament era. They don't exist for us now. Specifically, I would say the apostles in this reference refer to the twelve. That's the eleven he originally just selected. And then minus Judas, who's not part of the foundation. He was a devil from the beginning, according to John chapter 6. He was never intended to be part of this foundation. And then he was replaced in the upper room by a true apostle, not an imitation. God chose him. The lot fell on who God intended it to fall on. And to the twelve, we add one man, the apostle Paul. He says himself, I was one born out of my generation. 
born out of time, the least of all the apostles. What makes these apostles different from all other men on the face of the earth? They alone saw Christ eye to eye, face to face. They witnessed his miracles, not just one or two of them, but all of them. They were with him day and night, and they were trained by him for this task. They alone were trained by Christ. So to be an apostle, you would have had to stand face to face with the physical Christ. Paul did that. He did that on the road to Damascus. He was later taught by Christ in the desert for three years. He was taught all of his doctrine, not by men, but by Christ himself, he says. So the office of apostle is a very closed set, as we see it here. As this term is being used, it does not exist in our church today. We have a foundation, and they... Praise God, we're selected by Christ, taught by Christ, trained by Christ, equipped by Christ, and carried out the work that God gave them to do perfectly, just as He intended. Next to them are the New Testament prophets. Now, I know we talked about this earlier. Some always run to the Old Testament to find prophets. But we know that prophets followed and attended to the work of the, of the ministry with the apostles. There were those in Corinth who were in the role of a prophet. They stood and prophetically spoke in the services. Paul actually encouraged that, right? He said, we'd rather have a word of prophecy than thousands of words spoken in an unknown tongue that none of us can understand. We'd rather have one word of prophecy for the building up of God's church. And so we have the role of the prophet. What was the role of the prophet? They took the doctrine passed down from Christ to the apostles, and they took it into the local church, and they rooted it into the local church by practical ministry, teaching it day in, day out, night in, night out. They labored to explain all the doctrine that the apostles were teaching. That's what the prophet did in the New Testament. So we have two foundational roles. And to that, we have the fact that Christ gave the church after the foundation was laid Two groups of men to continue the building process. Not lay the foundation again. The foundation is laid in the holy apostles and prophets. But now the building must be erected. The church must be built and edified. And this is the role of the evangelist and pastor teacher. Now, we, we're common in our churches to use the term evangelism. Even call people evangelists. You might know of those guys. You might have sat under some of their preaching. They typically are treated in our society as men who sweat a lot, spit a lot, holler a lot, guilt a lot, and play long invitation hymns. That's not the New Testament. The evangelist was one who quickly after the, the, the coming to the end of the age of the apostles and prophets carried on the role of the apostles and prophets by going to new places with the same message. They were opening up new eras in the church. Paul went in his day to the whole world, did he not? Isn't that what he said? He went, what did he mean by that? Did he go to China? No, he didn't go to China. Did he go down into the uh, tip of Africa? No, he didn't do that, did he? What did Paul mean when he said, I went to all the world with the gospel? He meant... All his world, all the known world, he, he did take it to all the Roman Empire. He did take it to all of the Middle East. But after the role of the apostle and prophets, is, is begin, we see a transition begin to happen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, what does Paul encourage Timothy to do? 
practice what God has given you, the gift of evangelism. What's he telling him? Well, in verse 20, he later tells him, hurry and move on the way. Stop staying in Ephesus. you got work to do. Move out. Continue the work of an evangelist. Don't settle down and miss your calling, Timothy. That's what he's telling him. Sure, you're a good pastor. Certainly, you can teach well. Absolutely, you know the doctrine of our Lord. I taught it to you. You've breathed it in. It is your very life. But move on now. There's other men who are pastor and teach the church, but you are an evangelist. Keep moving. The evangelist was not some circuit-riding, fire-breathing, sweating, um, usually uh, screaming a lot, man. He was rather one who took the doctrine of the apostles to those who had not heard it yet. In this sense, they still exist in our day. There are, in the West African nations, 317 groups of people. They speak their own languages, they live in their own tribes, and they have very little to no contact with the outside world. 317 of them that have never, that we know of, heard the gospel. They have no gospel witness. They do not have the scripture in their language. They do not have a church. They do not have pastors and teachers. They are living in darkness. So what what does the church need to do? We need to pray that God raise up evangelists to go to them. I had the great privilege of sitting in my office two weeks ago with Norbert. He grew up in the Ivory Coast. He lived most of his life there. His family is still there, and he's here being trained to do what, I said. What will be your ministry? He said there's 317 tribes around where I grew up who have never heard the gospel, have no church, have no written word. I'm going to them. Why do you need the support of the church here if you're going over there? That's the question I asked. This was his answer. Because we need your prayer. It's going to be a hard work. We need your education. We don't know the Scriptures as well as the Western Church. We need you to teach us. We don't need you to do our ministry. We can do that. God has gifted us. And finally, we need your support financially, not just so we can live large lives, but because I'm going to die in what I'm doing. They will kill me. And I'll leave behind a widow and four children. They'll need your financial support. This is the heart of an evangelist. Not to travel to the next town with the best Kentucky Fried Chicken and scream and holler and sweat a lot. No. To go where the Word of God has not been heard, at least in this generation, and to preach the name of Christ. The same doctrine passed down from the apostles and prophets. For this reason, the task of the evangelist still exists today. Still exists today. Over 1,900 groups of people we know of still exist today on this planet without the written Word of God, without a church witness, and without anyone telling them the gospel. The church still should pray that God raise up laborers to go to the harvest field. And we need evangelists. God knows we need them. And He is preparing our church, even this church possibly, to send equipped and trained men and women to these fields. Not only did he give after the apostles and prophets evangelists, but he also gave pastor teachers. Now, I've combined these two. Although there is debate about whether there are two different people being talked about here, I believe 
that the evidence speaks to the fact that this is one role. Pastor, teacher. One is descriptive of the other. These are shepherds who, how do they shepherd the flock? They teach the flock. That's their primary role. Well, that is because I read in the New Testament very clearly that Paul, in Acts 20, verse 17 through 18, called to himself the, the men of Ephesus, the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, I skipped down to verse 28 to get the specific point that I'm trying to make here. Pay careful attention to yourselves, speaking to the elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops, to take care for the church of God, and which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after I, my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What does the flock need? It needs overseers. It needs shepherds. What will these overseers do? They will shepherd. They will protect the flock. How will they do that? Well, what are they protecting them from might be a better first question. Among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, false doctrine, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Don't go to sleep, he says. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So if these men are to protect the flock, what are they protecting it from? False teaching. How do you protect the flock from false teaching? You identify it as false teaching and you teach true doctrine. That's how you protect the church. You train people in true doctrine. Paul's not the only one that saw the sense of this office as a pastoral office, a shepherding office, but Peter understood this also. 1 Peter 5, 1-4 says, So I exhort the elders among you, the presbyters, the elders, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What are the elders to do? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, being as a bishop, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over, the, over the, those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here, the two, we might say, preeminent apostles both understand the role of the pastor-teacher to be this, shepherd the flock. How do you shepherd them? And what are you shepherding them away from and toward? You're to shepherd them by teaching right doctrine. That's what they're to grow towards, Christ and right teaching. And away from false doctrine and false teachers. Now, Paul, simply to say this. In our churches today, here in the West particularly, <clears throat> we have begun to draw away from the gift of teaching. We've begun to make it less prominent. We've begun to say things like, well, you know, preaching is outdated. There are better modes of communication. People get bored at long sermons or just sermons in general. One of my heroes in the faith, faith has said often, sermonettes make Christianettes. Why does he say that? Because it's absolutely true. You show me a church that devalues the role of God's Word 
by devaluing the role of teaching and discipling people in God's Word, I'll show you a church that is weak and floundering. I don't care how many people they draw on a Sunday morning. They are weak and they are floundering and they are victims of false doctrine. I guarantee it. It's no exception to that, by the way. You can go in the Bible study rooms or Sunday school classrooms, whatever you want to call it, of those churches. I've been there. Many of you have been there. And you can hear all the heresies from the first century being taught as fact. The humanity of Christ without the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ without the humanity of Christ. You can hear all the modern trends being discussed economic policies, politics, and whatnot, but you will not get a straight cutting of God's Word applied to life so that obedience is required. Why? Because teaching is boring and it's outdated. The church in the West has become consumed with methods to grow the church. I want to make a point clear here. Paul's talking about the building up of God's church, and who does he talk about, or what does he talk about? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Not methods, but messengers. Why? Because when God's Word is taught in spirit and truth, God builds His church. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our ingenuity. He doesn't need our creativity, our artistic desire for expression. He needs the Word of God taught purely, rightly, with dignity and honor, and with a life that matches it and is becoming of it, so that He can grow His church. He will add to it daily those who are being saved when that is done. And when it's not, you can add all the bodies you want to add you are not growing a church. I don't know if that was stated plainly enough, but I want to tell you, I get my trip to the... I take a break from studying or from visiting or writing notes or whatever I'm doing. At about 2 o'clock every day, I walk out to the mailbox to laugh at the junk that comes in the mail to tell me how... The church of God has grown through the next great conference, the next great uh, series of DVDs. I alternate between laughing and crying about it. It's offensive. I'll just be blunt with you. Why? Because Christ bought His church. He is the head of His church. He is building His church. And He has chosen to give the church gifted men to simply teach the Word. Infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. And people will be saved and the church will grow. And that's the pastor that's being fired in our day. In most of the churches not only in our county, but in the West. The faithful pastor is the one who's in jeopardy of losing his job. I shudder to think of the congregations that will stand before the Lord and give account for trampling on the gifts that He gave them.
I'm blessed to serve in this church. There's four other elders. We serve together, not under compulsion, but with great love in our heart. Because one thing is true. We got a lot of problems here at Grace Fellowship. We are not perfect. But one thing is true. I never doubt that what you're looking for from me and these other men is that we shepherd you with the Word of God. I don't, I don't even question that. I never feel guilty sitting behind my desk studying God's Word. As a matter of fact, when the day has grown late and I hadn't sat behind the desk, I feel guilty. I'm under conviction. Because I know this congregation wants God's Word taught. And more than that, they want to live it in their daily life. And I thank God for it. I thank God for it because these men that God gave had one common gift, though they had a lot of callings, a lot of places they went, but they were all teachers. Paul is emphasizing, God's emphasizing the task of teaching. The, the main task of all these men is to teach the Word of God because it is in the teaching of God's Word that Christ is exalted as head of the church. You say, but, but we just need more practical things. No, what you need is Jesus. He is mediated through the Word by His Spirit. For the last 30 years, the church has grown more anemic as it has created more programs and gotten further away from the Word of God. Are you shocked? If you feed your kids Skittles every day, three meals a day, don't expect them to be healthy. Expect them to look like junk food addicts. My people get tired of chewing steak. Then grow teeth. That's what Peter said. Wean off the simple things onto the meatier things. It's tough to digest. You'll struggle at the beginning, but God will grant the ability to digest the tough things. Keep begging and pleading with Him, and He'll train and teach you. Don't go to the bowl of Skittles for relief. I, just reading, I was reading just the other day about one of those bowls of Skittles. Profound article in Christianity Today. Youth ministry, as it was presented to us in the 1970s, as a package deal where kids got entertained to death and joked to death and laughed to death and cut away from their parents and cut away from the Word of God and take 50 trips a year to have a good time, feed them pizza, that kind of thing. No Word of God, a little devotion at the end. Guess what? Christianity Today, the largest study that's been done on this, this role and facet of ministry, a bowl of Skittles is what I call it, they stamped a big stamp of failed over the top of it. And they're shocked. They shouldn't be shocked. Less youth stay in church past the youth group than ever before. That's what the study found. Less 20-somethings in church than prior to 1970. That's why at this church, whenever God blesses us with a ministry towards our families, we always say it that way. We mean that. It is a ministry to families, not just to a segment of the family. So when we start, and I pray God would start soon, working a group together to study God's Word as young people, that will happen not cut away from parents, but with parents. It will not happen in obstinance against parents 
but in cooperation with parents, encouraging parents, equipping parents to disciple their own children. That's the purpose. If we want to have a youth ministry, that's what youth ministry is. If we're not going to do that, we don't need youth ministry. There are many more gifts given to the church. Many more. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Galatians. They all list more gifts than this. Why does Paul focus on these four gifts? What's, what's he doing here? Why did Christ give these gifts to his church? And why is Paul emphasizing these gifts? Well, we've been through a lot of this. We see that he gave the pastor and teacher to the church and the evangelists to prepare the saints. Verse 12 says, to equip the saints. That's a medical term, to mend the saints together. That's why he gave the evangelist and pastor teacher. The saints are being prepared to do the work of ministry. Revolutionary idea. You didn't hire me or Dave or elect other elders in this church to do ministry. I know I'm stepping on sacred cows today. Youth ministry, bowls of Skittles. Listen, do you really think God in His sovereign plan just set aside a handful like 1% or 2% of the church to do all the work? That's a great plan, isn't it? No. Why would he set aside these men? Not to do the ministry, but to train and equip you to do ministry. That's why here, we work hard not to start ministries as pastors. Some of you have faced the frustration of that. You have brought us what you believe to be the greatest thing that could ever revolutionize our church. And we smiled and looked at you and said, that's great. Pray about it. Put a plan together and come see us. Tell us how you want to do that ministry. A lot of times, unfortunately, a lot of times, that kind of jolts the person. Say, well, I was just telling you what I wanted you to do. And, the, and that, that thing just is gone. So if you're wondering what happened, that's what happened. We're still waiting on you. You say, well, I'm frustrated. I want you to do it. Oh, that's not what God gave us to you for. He gave us to you so that when He burdens you with a ministry, we can help you do it well. We can guard and shepherd you with the Word of God and empower you with the thoughts of Christ in His Word so you can accomplish what He's called you to do. Not so we can steal God's purpose for you and calling for you and claim it for ourselves. Let me give you a great example of this. God gave at the founding of this church two young guys who had a passion for college ministry through Campus Outreach. They were a part of the foundation of this church. They built, under God's grace, a tremendous ministry to the JSU campus and to the world through that. And then God snatched them away. Well, we, we, we started praying. And what God has done is amazing. He's raised up an army of church members to do what those two people were doing. He said, well, don't you wish you had staff? You know, specifically like CO? Yes and no. I love the staff at CO, but what I love more is to see you doing the work of the ministry. That makes my heart leap. 
That makes, that makes things that, that, that makes things all come into focus. We didn't create something. It was there. And God brought many of you along to keep it growing. It's stronger now than it once was. We have a former student coming back to us, leaving what he was doing for a living and finding a job here to be part of what Grace Fellowship is doing at JSU. Because he says, this is a biblical model. I want to give myself to this. I want to submit to the leadership here. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? That's what Christ did, not what we did. And that's just one example. Women's ministry here is not some grand scheme. It's faithful women inside our congregation that want to minister to other women in our congregation and in the community. And they've been equipped to do it, and we support them 100%, and they go do it. Thank God I don't have to meet with the WMU. <laughs> For several reasons. Not to be offensive, but listen, how many ministries can one man do? Can five men do? Can 200 do? See, this is an exemption for the pastor not to minister. It's a, it's, a, it's a call for him to do what he's been set apart to do. And that's train up and disciple men and women to be ministers. So that the work of God is done through His church. And the saints are knitted together. Because all of you aren't in college ministry. And all of you aren't in women's ministry. And all of you aren't in each other's lives in every way. But what you do is you look around and there's this whole church not facing one another and, and loving one another only. They're, they're linked in arms like this, facing the world saying, the kingdom of God is being expressed through the multiplicity of gifts He's given to His church. And we want to reach our community with the gospel. That's what we're doing together. Together. So yesterday, a big group of you came and painted at the school. Not everybody did. It's okay. It's all right. Don't feel guilty about that. Don't apologize to me about that. I trust you. You are doing what God's called you to do. I'm going to make you aware of opportunities, and I trust the people that are supposed to be there will be there. One of the other pastors looked at me and said, you're so calm with these ministry projects. Why get nervous? I think we're doing a good thing. I think God will supply the people. I believe that. And it gets done. The work gets done. Not because I do it, but because you do it. This is a working church. It's not perfect. Some of you need to start working. Honestly, can I just be honest with you? Some of you are still waiting on me to be your minister. You're still concerned about what you need. And what this passage says is what you need is to be trained to meet someone else's need. So if you're sitting around right now, I'm not fussing at you, I'll just be honest with you. From the past, if you're sitting around right now saying, nobody loves me enough, nobody does enough for me, stop it. Say, what has God given me and called me to do? And how do I get ready to do it? I'm going to go. I'm going to preach. I'm going to teach. Or I'm going to lead in women's ministry. I'm going to work with children. Or whatever He has called you to do, do it. The most unhappy people in the world are God's people when they are not fulfilling what they know He's called them to do. Evangelists and pastor teachers ensure that the continued building of the body of Christ is done by preparing saints to minister to each other and to the world. To equip the saints for the work of ministry 
for building up the body of Christ. But there's still one unanswered question. What's the purpose? We'll get it next week. The ultimate goal. What is the ultimate goal of all this God's done? He's gifted the church, and now He's called us to ministry, all of us. But what's the goal? Next week. I promise. Next week. I want to close with this question. This is, I've asked it, but I want to ask it again. And I know it's a personal question. I think this text is very personal. What has God gifted you to do, called you to do, and are you doing it? Are you ready to do it? Are you equipped to do it? You see, because some of it's, it comes different for everyone. Because some of you are out there ministering and working and serving, and you're not equipped very well. And you need to be equipped. For some of you, you're out there working and serving in a various bunch of ways, but not in any way what he's called you to do. So you need to kind of rearrange your work schedule. Get in to what he's called you to. Work there. And then some of you are not doing anything. You're still waiting on everybody to serve you. And so the question is, who are you serving? What are you doing? What has God called you to? And how does this church equip you to do it? God has blessed this church with a house full of servants. There's not a hierarchy here. We've said that already. In closing, I say, there's no pyramid structure. It's not the pastor, teacher at the top, and then the next level, the elders, and then the next level, the deacons, and then the next level, the in crowd, and the next level, just a bunch of people. That's not, that's not it. If you thought that's what it was, you were mistaken. What is it? It's even level. Everyone equal in Christ, gifted particularly to bring about unity in the Spirit, which exists in the reality, by using expressing our gifts. So God's gifted you with five pastors to help equip you. We love what we do, but we can't do it without you. Okay? So answer the question. What is it God's gifted me to do? Am I doing it? Am I equipped to do it? Or am I still sitting on the sidelines saying, somebody do something for me? Let's pray. Father, your word is true and it, and it cuts us very deeply. Often.